Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to episode 100 of the Middle Grade Ninja podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Rob Kent, and I'm thrilled to have reached this milestone. Um, in some ways, this, this episode, honestly, is, is not going to be that much different than other episodes. It, it could be episode 99. It could be episode 70. Um, uh, but uh, it is thrilling to have reached this milestone. Something about that, that round number 100, it feels like if I had stopped podcasting around episode 80, then everyone would have said, well, you had a you had a good run. You, you gave a good attempt at it. But something about reaching that magic number of 100 is, no, it was definitely a podcast. And this isn't the, the final episode. I've already recorded one for next year, and I've, I've got more planned for you. Uh, but something about reaching that number feels like, oh, no, we, we, we really did do a thing. It's real. It exists. So that's that's a nice feeling to have. Um, this will be the last episode of 2020. Uh, the plan is that uh, we'll release a uh, clip show uh, right around the first of the new year. Um, another massive clip show that'll be multi multiple hours long uh, with over 40 clips from uh, from previous guests uh, for you to enjoy. And then I'll be back January 30th uh, is the plan. Although if 2020 uh, has taught me anything, uh, it's that uh, even the, the best made plans um, <laughs> can sometimes uh, not, not, not go as planned. Uh, but but. To the best of my knowledge, the show will return January 30th. I hope you enjoy the holidays uh, without me. Uh, and then I'll be back to remind you that I've got a book releasing uh, February 21st of 2021. That'll be Banneker Bones, The Cyborg Conspiracy, the uh, final book in the Banneker Bones trilogy. Um, possibly the last book. We'll, we'll, we'll see about that. Uh, if you're curious about Banneker Bones, good news. Uh, you can get the first book, Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, as a paperback and audiobook, or the ebook is free. Free to download whenever you're listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. So check that out. Uh, if you've been enjoying the show for 100 episodes and you've been wondering, what can I do? Uh, to help out the, the Middle Grade Ninja who, who provides such uh, fantastic content for me, well, I'm so glad you asked. Uh, you could, at any given point, possibly even while you're listening to me say this right now, uh, pull up your device and rate and review the episode on the platform that you're listening to it on. That would be a tremendous help to me. It's free to you. Uh, wouldn't take you but a moment or so, and I'd greatly appreciate it. Um, so episode 100, uh, like I say, not that much different than, than previous episodes. Uh, Hugh Howie had joked uh, when he came on that he, you know, he wanted uh, to have been the 100th uh, guest, uh, which would have been fine with me. Uh, Hugh Howie is a hero of mine. I'm a great admirer of his work. It was absolutely a thrill to get to talk to him. Um, but the truth is, it's, it's, it's been an absolute thrill to talk to every guest on this show. I haven't had an interview that I've regretted yet. I've, I've said some dumb things uh, over the course of 100 episodes that I maybe wish I had been a little bit smarter in the moment. Uh, much better writing and editing than I am speaking in free form, uh, which I think you're probably getting a sense of right now listening to me. Um, but uh, by golly... The guests have said some tremendously fascinating things. This, uh, for me, is 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 the equivalent to uh, an MFA degree uh, in in creative writing. Listening to these writers, these uh, editors, and uh, publicists, and, and literary agents, publishing professionals, 
Um, folks I admire and, and am genuinely really interested in, I hope that you've been genuinely interested as well. The um, audio at times for these hundred episodes has been kind of hit and miss. Uh, the I you know I'm doing the best I can technically. Um, I hope that I'm improving as a as a host over a hundred episodes, but I know I'm still asking long rambling questions to nowhere and routinely uh, putting my foot in my mouth, which I very rarely edit out. Uh, the reason why is I figure. Uh, it's not fair to the guest if I took out the dumb thing I say and then you don't know why they're reacting to the dumb thing I said. <laughs> but hopefully uh, we're keeping that to a minimum and, and hopefully for the next hundred episodes I'll continue to improve and that and that will lessen. Um, in some ways it does not matter who the guest is for, for episode 100 because any of the guests I've talked to would, would make an excellent candidate. Just last week we had Gene Neary on here for episode 99 easily could have been uh, uh, episode 100 uh, or any of the guests that I've, I've had previously. Uh, it just so happens uh, that I happened to, to, to recently talk with editor Cheryl Klein. Uh, and that is honestly, um, every episode, every every guest I talk to is, is a big deal. Every episode is a treat. But Cheryl Klein meant a little bit of something to me personally just because I bought her book, Second Sight, when I was really starting to take writing middle-grade fiction seriously. Uh, and she was somebody I looked up to. I, I read that book a few times through, had met multiple highlight uh, remarks. I sought out interviews with her. And it was, okay, Cheryl Klein, um, uh, head of Leon Lowe uh, Books, uh, editor for Harry Potter novels, and don't worry, we're, we're going to talk about all of that in this episode. That's somebody that I wish I could talk to, but probably won't ever happen. Uh, and by golly, look, here here we are, episode 100. It has happened. And uh, Also, the nice thing about uh, choosing an editor is I didn't have to choose an author for episode 100, uh, because how could I choose? Every author I've talked to on the show is amazing, and I, I, I love you all, and I can't thank all of you, uh, everyone who's appeared on the show, uh, enough for, for keeping us going. And for those of you who've been listening from the beginning and those of you who've just found us, hi, welcome to the show. I promise I don't usually ramble this long at the start. Um, thank you so much for your support. Thank you for those of you that have posted reviews, those of you that have reached out to me to let me know that you're enjoying the show, and those of you that continue to come on the show and, and, and keep it going. It just means the world to me. I, I, I couldn't be prouder of this podcast because it's a show that if I weren't hosting it, I would look forward to listening to. Um, but enough talk. By golly, we've got Cheryl Klein here, and let's not waste one more moment. I'm looking forward to uh, more episodes with you in 2021, seeing where this show is going to continue to evolve for here. But for right now, let's start episode 100. Editor Cheryl Klein and author Cheryl B. Klein, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a delight to be here. I am so thrilled to, to chat with you. I've been looking forward to this for, uh, what, a month, month and a half. I've uh, just been, oh, my God, I, I have so many questions. I hope I wrote them all down. I hope I don't forget. <laughs> <laughs> so probably the best place to start is I never summarize anyone else's book or anyone else's biography because I'll make a mess of both. Uh, mm -hmm. So if you would, tell an esteemed audience kind of a, an overview of your background, although no one in my crowd, they probably have some idea of who you are already. I have been in this business 20 years now, surprisingly enough. Um, uh, 
my, my current position is I'm the editorial director of Lee and Lowe Books, which is a small independent press devoted to work by and about people of color and other underrepresented groups. Um, I uh, Before that, I've been there for about three and a half years. And before that, I spent 16 years as an editorial assist, as an assistant, uh, I spent 16 years as an editor at Arthur A. Levine Books Scholastic. Um, where I started as an editorial assistant, got all of my editorial education, and rose to being executive editor there. And at both places, I've done a pretty nice mix of novels and picture books um, with a real focus on people from underrepresented groups and um, and on good literary quality of various kinds, is what I would say. Like, um, both of the publishers I've worked for have been very interested in, like, telling stories with depth and heart and reality, portraying the reality of other people's lives. And, um, and that's all the things that I'm interested in as a reader and as an editor as well. So it's been a very happy career all around. Um, do you foresee yourself editing uh, to the end of your career? Or do you at some point have aspirations to go become a movie star? Or? <laughs> <laughs> I editing is my um, vocation is what I would say is, is like, yes, I see myself editing for as long as, you know, the publishing industry will have me basically. Um, and because uh, it's a it's a great job where you get to read things and think about them in depth and talk about them with really interesting people and then shape them in a way that um, you are going to in future shape the way people think and talk about things you know you're like you're you're putting out the books that will hopefully change readers minds about how they feel about something um whether it's a, a non-fiction subject or another person who they may not have met or might be creating more empathy you know because they think oh that's that that sort of situation you know something like that um so uh so it's a very satisfying job and um, one that I really love and I, I see myself doing it as long as I can, yeah. Although, uh, if Steven Spielberg is watching and he sees you and he says that you've got to come be in a we'll see what happens. <laughs> no, I think, I, think, I think the world needs you right where you are. More empathy is, is desperately needed. Yeah. Um, uh, lots of questions for you. Let's, uh, if if you don't mind, maybe start a little bit at the beginning and, and we'll build it up. But I promise esteemed audience, we will not finish this interview without at least talking once about flying saucers and Harry Potter. That's my personal pledge. But let's start because you uh, were raised in, in a peculiar Missouri. Is that right? That is correct. With the sound motto is where the odds are with you. <laughs> it's about um, it's about half an hour south of uh, Kansas City. So whenever I describe where I'm from, I usually say I'm from Kansas City. And um, I'm the daughter of two school teachers and uh, the granddaughter, this is the most relevant part, of a children's literature professor. My grandfather, um, Philip Sadler, founded the, uh, taught children's literature at the University of Central, what's now the University of Central Missouri. And mostly what he did was teach teachers how to use children's books in their classrooms and then when they were teaching reading. So, um, but... He also founded one of the nation's first children's literature festivals. So every, every spring he would invite like 20 to 40 authors to come to this small town, Warrensburg, Missouri, in um, central Missouri. And um, they would meet with 
hundreds, if not thousands of school kids around the, from around the area who would bu be bussed in to hear the author speak. And as far as I know, this is one of the first uh, children's literature festivals ever founded in the United States. He started doing it back in, I think, the late 60s. And they recently celebrated the 50th anniversary. And um, I was lucky enough that I started going to it when I was just a baby. You know, like my mom tells stories of driving uh, Clyde Robert Bulla through the um, snow <laughs> and, and um, me being held in his arms as we were going to Warrensburg. You know, so um, so that's so I grew up going to the festival. I grew up knowing children's authors. I grew up getting all my grandfather's review copies, all those sort of things. So, so I really grew up like immersed in children's literature long past the point that a lot of my peers had sort of moved on to reading adult books. I mean, I also moved on to reading young adult books and reading adult books. But like when I was in college, I was also still reading. I would go to the Northfield Public Library and I would check out children's books or I would go and find children's books that I loved and read those alongside my English major books. So, um, so I, I knew I, I, I loved children's literature all my life. And then um, when I was in high school, my mom gave me a book called Great Careers for Readers because I decided I wanted to do something, have a career that involved reading in some way because that was what I loved the most in the world. And I read about being a book editor and I thought that sounds really amazing. And so I went to college with the thought that I was going to become a book editor. Um, and I became straight an straight to it. Never, never any divergence. Like this is what I will do. Well, when I, when I, I mean, before that, I thought, you know, I was a smart girl, quote unquote. And um, and smart girls, like I was encouraged to be a doctor. My dad really wanted me to be a doctor. And I basically I got through high school biology and I was like, I do not like cutting things up. And this is not what I'm passionate about, you know. And what and then it's like, what am I passionate about? Well, it's reading. And so where where, where do I find a career that's reading? I, I did think about being a librarian instead. <laughs> but uh, but I felt like I wanted to really be involved with making the books, first of all. I wanted to try that at least. And so um so yeah, I went straight to editing. And um after college I uh I, I went to Carleton College in Minnesota, which is a really nice school that very few people have heard of. And um and I always had to work in the summers to make money for during the school year. So I never like went, came to New York and did an internship. And so after college, and internships are important as like a way of making connections and getting experience. So after college, I went to what's called the Denver Publishing Institute. And I describe it as publishing camp, basically. And while I was there, I met Susan Hirschman, who was the founding editor of Green Willow Books. Um, and she talked about her experience editing Robin McKinley and William Steig and all these amazing people. And I was like, it was literally like I was sitting there listening to her and it was like a light shone down on me from above. I was like, <laughs> this is what you should do. Go, my child. And I was like, yes. And, um, and I wrote to her and I was like, I would love to work for you. And she wrote back and she said, um, I don't have any jobs available, but um, Arthur Levine is hiring an assistant right now. And she sent my resume to Arthur and um, Arthur interviewed me and it was a terrible, terrible interview because I knew that he, I was a big Harry Potter fan by that point. Um, this was the summer of 2000, right after Goblet of Fire had come out. And, um, and I knew that he edited the books and I really wanted to work for him. And so as a result, uh, whenever I get really nervous, I sort of shut down quite often. Like that's the way I manage a, um, a lot of emotional overload. And so he thought I was very sweet and very shy 
And because my eyes are really bloodshot, possibly a pothead. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but he gave... was not a, a disqualifier. <laughs> <laughs> he he was like, uh, he gave me the opportunity to write um, readers reports, which I had learned how to do at Denver. And and so basically, I got the job on the strength of my writing skills for writing readers reports. And um, and that turned out to it worked out pretty well around, all around for both of us, I think. So, yeah. So the interview doesn't go well, but then you get the job, and then he sees the the quality of your app. But at what point does he say this person goes from the assistant to being the continuity editor on the biggest books we've ever had, or probably ever will have? I I would almost have to guess. Yeah. Um, well, the, um, I, you know, as an editorial assistant, like really you are your boss's right hand. That's your job is, um, and trying to supply all the things your boss might need during the course of the day or, and be back up on any sort of, um, of editing work that they do. And at the same time, you're an apprentice because you're like watching all the editing work that they do. And you're seeing like, how do they phrase questions to the author? And um, why are they asking this and not that? What is important to ask questions about and all this? Um, so definitely I, I I was doing all of that. Like what book five was the first book that we, well, we had the charity books, which were like Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. And um, Quidditch through the ages. We worked on those and um, and then and I proved myself useful because I'm really I'm really detail oriented and and I have a good I have a background in copy editing to some extent. And so those things are both really useful when you're working with a big multifarious world. And um, and so on book five, I again like served as backup to Arthur um, in the sense that the, the way we eventually described it was that um, like when you're editing, you have to keep track of both the facts and the feelings, you know, because like the facts of what's going on in the story greatly influence and, and how real everything is greatly influence how you feel about it. You know, like um, like if you're if you're in a if you're in a book and the hero suddenly pulls out a sword from nowhere and you're like, wait a minute he's been wearing a loincloth where was he carrying a sword you know <laughs> like like that sort of the lack of fact there then the and the underlying reality would impact your feeling about how awesome the moment might be when he pulls out a sword um so the way we eventually described it or i described it is that we like arthur kept track of the feelings and i took care of the facts <laughs> and, and obviously like he was also keeping track of the facts too like that's just part of the editorial job but um but like I was trying to keep track of all the things like how is Birdie Bot's every flavor bean spelled like do we leave the U in every flavor bean um do we uh it, all the all the different all the little if you say alohomora what what is what spell does that correspond to what action should happen um, which hand does Harry carry his wand in? All of those sort of detail, factual things that we needed to try to keep consistent throughout this huge, gigantic world. Um, I sort of took over some of that, and that allowed Arthur to concentrate on his relationship with J.K. Rowling and um, and the feeling, the emotional experience that the reader was having. So, so you, I mean, surely you don't start with, with Harry Potter, how many books are you working on and, and, and working with him before you get to, okay, now I'm all the way. And you were a Harry Potter fan, you said before. Were you a, were you a real big Potterhead or were you a casual fan? Where was your level of, of fandom before you became a part of the family? 
Um, I, I mean, I was a reader fan. Like I had read all, all of the books. Um, I, I first heard about the book, uh, when I was driving to college, literally, I can tell you, I was first, I was driving to college with my roommate, um, for our senior year and she had book three in the back seat while she was driving. And so I started reading it and that's how I got hooked on Harry Potter. And, um, and I read books one and two over the course, I finished book three, I read books one and two over the course of the next year. And then um, I went to a midnight party for book four. And uh, right before I went to the Denver Publishing Institute. And then I spent most of the first day of the Denver Publishing Institute reading book four. <laughs> and um, I'm not sorry. And, uh, and then... So well, it was an important career move, although I don't know that yeah, you knew it at the time. <laughs> that's true. Um, and uh, so that so, and I, I should say when, when I say I'm not sorry, I say I am not sorry for my experience as a reader in that way because um, I did I loved all the experience of reading those books and I think I still love the experience of reading those books when I go back into them. Um, but I will acknowledge up front that. It is a different time now. Those books were written at a specific time, and um, and they uh, that and time has moved on, and J.K. Rowling has moved on to a much different um, approach to where she seems to be really into transphobia now. And um, I, so while I love the book still, I totally understand people who have decided that they cannot love the books or that they used to love the books and they regret it and they've or they've stepped back from J.K. Rowling altogether like um especially a lot of the younger Harry Potter fans I know who grew up on the series um that it's been a really painful last year I think for a lot of people and I'm really sorry about that yeah fair enough uh what tell you what I've got a few Harry Potter questions and, and then we're going to move on because I, I I told you before we started that Talking to you and not talking about Harry Potter is like interviewing Neil Armstrong and never once bringing up the moon. Um, but I do want to talk about Lee and Lowe and, and all the things that you, you've done since. Yeah. Um, but my God, that experience, the working on those last two books, the whole world wants to know how does it all end. And you know, that's got to be like the literary equivalent of walking around like a beetle. Yeah. What's, what's that experience like? Uh, what I used to tell people is that... Um, I mean, yeah, it was pretty awesome. I will say, <laughs> like, like having having these big, big secrets about what happened, and um, and being like one of ten people in North America who knew what happened, or something like that. Like that was really, really cool. I do not deny that in any way. Um, but a lot of times, people would say to me, like, "What happened? You know, can you tell me anything?" And what I would say is, "You don't want me to tell you. You want J.K. Rowling to tell you." And that's true, because like if I said, um, if, if, you know, if they said, who's the half blood prince? And I said, Severus Snape, they'd be like, oh, you know, <laughs> like, like the fun is all in figuring out the mystery and going along with Harry and discovering all the all the stuff yourself and being caught up in that. Like the fact, again, it's like the facts and the feelings thing. The facts aren't what make a book exciting. It's the feelings that the book creates in you. And and that's something that only J.K. Rowling and the experience of reading the book could provide. So um, so it was very special and very exciting. Um, but uh, but I, I also always stayed aware that like I was just a 
handmaiden on the road to getting the book out, you know, to like telling the story in the way that the uh, author wanted to tell the story. And that was the important thing. I read, uh, I, I saw you talk uh, on Nightline uh, about uh, being stopped by a, a security guard while you're, um, you've got the manuscript in your bag. And you're, I mean, you're walking around basically with the nuclear codes at that time. Yeah. Uh, were you, what kind of security measures were in place and how terrified were you that somebody was just going to jack your backpack and make off with the manuscript and it's online tomorrow? Um. Or maybe three days. I don't remember how fast the internet was back actually, then. Actually, <laughs> the great thing about all of that was that I was, like, the part of the reason they sent me was that I was just random 20-something number 488, you know? Like, I, was, I didn't have a, I wasn't married. Or I didn't have a family at the time, anything like that. Um, my best friend at the time, at the time, she actually lived in England. So I always enjoyed going to England. And, um, and so I could just go over there and nobody paid attention to me. Like, you know, like nobody knew who I was, nobody cared. And it was lovely to be sort of anonymous and know that I was carrying this thing. Um, uh, it, I mean, it, there's certainly the temptation to like when you're standing in a gift shop to be like, I have the Harry Potter manuscript, you know, that was sort of like a low rumble in your brain. But it's also like, if you did that, people would be like, I don't believe you. You know, <laughs> I mean, why would anybody think that? Like that—that that would just be like a crazy thing to say. Like, because um, obviously nobody would do that. <laughs> um, so, um, so, so it was fun, but um, but being being anonymous, um, being anonymous and important was fun, I guess. Things, but, well, but yeah, the time has has passed. Did you did you ever say anything to anybody just to, to test it out or, or spoil it just a little bit, just to just to see what that feels like to tell somebody something secret that only you could know? I um the year that I was working on book seven um was also the year I was dating my now husband for the first year, and um. And there was a certain amount of teasing of him that went on. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, 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 that resolved itself. He's, he's married. Yeah. You, you made sure that uh, you, you kept I brought that him into the family business. <laughs> <laughs> Had to marry him. It was the only way to protect the integrity of the work. Sure. Right. <laughs> and well, he actually, he is tall and thin and has bright red hair. So you could also say I married a Weasley. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, not to, again, not to spend forever on this, but I am fascinated by this idea that eventually I'm, I'm going to find that quality that I don't possess, but that I believe that certain people must. Um, like if I were to meet Stephen King, I believe that an ethereal music would play uh, whenever he approached. Like, oh, there's greatness. Now I see it. It's shining yeah. out of every out of every pore. Um, regardless of, of, of things that have happened with uh, Miss Rowling since the book, and, and honestly. I'm going to go ahead and say I think she's held it together remarkably well for considering writers don't want to necessarily become that famous. I wish she was being more responsible, and I have hope that she'll she'll evolve and, and, and she'll come back. Um, but at that time, you're already a fan, and I assume you're talking to her, or at least you're, you're aware of her because Arthur is talking to her. Um, did you notice anything specific about her that is not true of other writers? The thing I would say that always struck me about her as a writer when we were going through the editorial process was that she was somebody who knew exactly what she wanted. Like, um, like she, in the sense that she had a complete vision of the work from beginning to end. 
Like she knew what the story was going to be. She knew what all the plot developments would be. And like there were times in book five we'd say like, oh, could we cut this? And she says, no, that'll be important to book seven. You know, and it's, and, and there's, the, I will say that's, that's the long, the Harry Potter series, longest series I've ever worked on. I've never worked on another seven book series. Um, but that level of control of your material and, and of your vision and knowing how, how important everything is and, and also what is contributing to the, I'm going to keep coming back to this facts and feelings thing, the, the feeling, the emotional effect you want to create, like, she, she knew she wanted to have X emotional effect at one time because that makes a difference for Y emotional effect down the road, you know? And, um, and that's a thing that I don't often see in writers. Um, I, I mean, I think, I think writers often have, I mean, by the time I was working with her, she was on book five of the series. So, or the time, the time I was seeing her emotional, the time I was seeing her at work editorially, she was on book five of the series. So, um, so, but that, that's, so it takes, um, I think that's a thing that writers gain through experience. Um, like that you, by writing a lot and seeing what works and what doesn't and gaining confidence in yourself and mastery over your material, like that's, I think, um, what, that can that can contribute to that level of vision and control and then that ability to achieve the effects you want to have and to know what those effects should be you had a question later down for for about writerly ego you know i, oh, I, I sure. you quoted me somewhere i don't remember where i said it but um that uh, a writerly ego within certain limits is a good thing or something like that yeah that sounds like you um <laughs> <laughs> I wanted, yeah, I, would, I did want to know what those those limits were. Yeah, um, the and by that I'm I'm sort of thinking about this level of confidence that she has, um, and 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 this level of vision. Like I think that I think a writerly ego, when you know the story you want to tell, you have confidence that it's a good story, and you have confidence in your ability to carry it out. Then that's that's to me is a measure of a good writerly ego. When you have, um, in the sense that you you feel you ha you've got the chops that underlie the ego. You know, you've got the ability to achieve these effects and create this amazing story. Um, then I feel like you have earned the ego and you've earned the right to to be like, no, I'm not going to take that editorial note because that's not contributing to what I want to do. You know. Um, Versus people who are like, I don't want to take that editorial note just because how dare you suggest something to me or how dare you. Um, I, I don't know. It's a fine line because like there's <laughs> there's a comment thread somewhere from Anne Rice, the author of the Vampire Lestat books. I think it's on her book about Jesus or something like that. Um, and, and when I say comment thread, I believe she was she either wrote an Amazon review of her own book. Or she responded to somebody else's Amazon review of her book where she said, like, I am not edited. I do not allow my work to be edited because my work is perfect or something as it comes. And and that, I think, is a writerly ego that's gone beyond its own limits. You know, like, if you're not willing to listen to what other people are saying to you about your work and how it um, and how it's reading to them and how it's playing to them. 
if you can't find like readers you trust to like reflect you back to you as, as what they see on the page. Um, that to me is a, uh, ego that's kind of gone out of control, but, um, but if you're willing to at least listen to what reader, a smart reader is telling you, which is all an editor is, is a smart reader. And, um, and to say like, oh, that was not the effect I wanted to have. Let me tweak this. So the effect I want to have. Like that to me is a measure of a good writer and a good use of writerly ego. What if the author uh, comes to you and, and, and says, I don't want to make your change because this will happen later, but their reasoning is completely wrong. So they have a good reason. It's just not a good reason. Uh, but they think they do. How do you resolve a situation like that? This happens more often than you would think. Um, then at that point, it's my job as a reader to sort of um, listen very carefully to what they're saying and be sure that my premises are sound in terms of logic. Um, to also be sure like particularly in the work I do now with diverse books, that I'm not too up in my own head as a white reader. Because quite often my experience as a white reader can play differently when working with authors of color. Um, and, and they might not be writing for me. They might be writing for children of their own communities who would have different experiences than I would. And um, different... Um, vocabularies and different even emotional reactions than I would and um and so then I need to be sometimes I, I, I might say like okay I trust you to know your own community better than I do which would be fair um but I can tell them my experience with how things play to a white audience and how things play to a children's book professional audience, meaning both reviewers and, um, and uh, librarians. Um, and which is historically, this is, has been changing, but historically a very typically white audience and a very typically aesthetically minded audience. Like how, how do the aesthetics of things play out versus the politics of things? And um, so to come back to your question, like, if somebody came to me and said that, I would check my own logic. I would check my positioning as a critic of this. Um, I would listen very carefully to what they have to say, because um, if they're a good writer, then they clearly know their own mind. Um, and then I would do my best to either let it go or meet them in the middle or maybe get feedback from other, maybe get input from other readers. You know, like if, if it's something that it's like a obvious logical flaw um, or what seems to me like an obvious logical flaw, it might be useful to have somebody else read it and see if they also pick up on it. Is this a problem that's going to be a problem for a lot of readers or is it just a problem for me because like I really, I notice things like X, Y, Z. And, and I, I notice sequences in a way that other people don't notice sequences or something. Um, it, it, <laughs> this is getting very, very quickly into like all the different stuff that goes into an editorial mind and how, and how you think about books editorially. Like I, um, and that's, my job. That's, that's why we're here. 
Okay. Well, well like in my job is Leon Lowe, uh, it's very interesting because I work with, um, I'm, I'm part of being an editorial director is like, I oversee the work of a number of different editors. And, um, and one of the nice things about being an editorial director is that, uh, you get to help put together a list that draws on the strengths of all your different editors. You know, or, or I, I, I should say I don't get to put together a list, but we all work together to put together a list that reflects a lot of different strengths. And so, for instance, I know about myself that I'm a person who really likes lists and patterns and structure and that plot structure is very important to me. And um, and and so quite often the books I work on will have uh, some kind of formal underlying skeletal structure. I would say, like um, like patterns in how um, in like uh, these. Well, here I, I have a book right here that this is coming out. Um, this is Kiyoshi's Walk by Mark Carlins and illustrated by Nicole Wong. It's coming out next March, and I just got copy. This is my very first copy. I just got it yesterday. Um, Congratulations! Thank you. Yeah, and so this is a beautiful book about a boy. Um, a boy and his grandfather and, and he, he or she sees his grandfather write a poem and he, a, a haiku, and he wonders, where do poems come from? And, uh, and his grandfather says, let's go for a walk. So they go for a walk and they see, like here they go to the market and they see some oranges and a cat. And, um, and then after they leave the market, his grandfather writes a haiku that sort of reflects on what they have just seen. And, and Kiyoshi says, oh, poems, does that mean poems come from seeing things? And then they go to another place and they listen to birds. And, and Kiyoshi says, oh, you find poems by listening. And so basically, like, it goes, there's, they go to, like, five different places and there's five different things. And, and Kiyoshi gets a sense of, like, the five different senses and how they each contribute to the making of poetry. And so this is, like... I think of it as like a classic Cheryl Klein book in the sense that there's this very specific structure that happens in the course of the story. Um, and that really speaks to me in a way that like, I know, uh, like I have another editor at Leon Lowe who does not like books like this, <laughs> who has a much more like, her, her, she's much more intuitive and like she likes magic realism a lot more than I do. I'm not a magic realist person and she is. Um, and, uh, and there's, and, and, and I don't think that my books are better than her books or, or anything like that. Like, I, I think it's just literally a reflection of our editorial personalities. And the great thing is about having a team like the one we have at Leon Lowe is that you put together a lot of different personalities and you get books for a lot of different readers, you know, because not every book will appeal to every reader. So, um, so that way we are putting out books for a whole range of readers altogether. Gotcha. Yeah. So lots to, lots to follow up on there. <laughs> I definitely want to talk uh, about uh, Leon Lowe. Before we move on from this idea of ego, um, we, we, we did the Cheryl B. Klein side. We talked about author ego. What about editor ego? How much of an editor ego is healthy and how much gets in your way and how do you keep it in check? Because there have to have been moments. My God, you're walking around in your 20s. Uh, I, I have the Harry Potter manuscript. There had to be a little bit of a, of a boost to your self-esteem somewhere in there that maybe maybe got just a little bit larger than was healthy. Oh, goodness. Well, I mean, <laughs> I'm laughing just because, like, if there's anything, like, 
certainly, if you are acquiring a, what do I want to say about this? Yeah, there are all sorts of ways to have a, a healthy, a, a healthy self-esteem as an as a editor. Like, um, if your books are, well, how about this? The measure, the measure of success for an editor is generally, like, how well your books do. You know, like, like you want to make beautiful objects, but then you want those beautiful objects to find their way into readers' hands, and you want them to sell. So, so like the definition of success for an editor is to some extent, how well do your books sell or how well are they received by the critics or what kind of awards do they receive, which often usually corresponds to selling. Um, and there are a whole bunch of factors that we do not control as editors. They're like, our, I think authors are very used to seeing editors as like all powerful godheads. And editors do not experience our lives that way at all. <laughs> well, maybe not other editors I've talked to, but you, you're the executive editor for Leon Lowe. Surely you, if anybody would have that, I, I would think I'm talking uh, to her. I mean, certainly <laughs> like, yes, we, we have the ability to make books happen in the sense that we have the ability to, to buy manuscripts and to turn them into objects and, and, and hopefully get the books out there. But even saying that, like, most editors are subject to um, the whims of a higher authority, whether it is an acquisitions board or um, or their boss. Like some houses have, their, you have to go through your boss, um, and and so in that way, like our power is not untrammeled. Like it's it's dependent upon our ability to persuade people above us to let us do this thing, and. Quite often, those people above us are highly influenced by their people above them, which is often like at a big corporate house, like Scholastic or like Random House or something. It's the book buyers at book at bookstores. So, like, if the Barnes and Noble rep has said, like in their last meeting, the Barnes and Noble rep said, "Poetry books, poetry books never ever sell," you know, then books that involve then like it's going to be hard for me to get this little book through my acquisitions board. And in fact, I will tell you this book, um, I was pitched this book, the author sent me this manuscript in 2011 when I was at Scholastic. Wow. And I loved it immediately. Um, but I thought this, I knew, I, I shared it with my boss at the time and he was not into it. And, um, and I and if he wasn't into it, then the editorial board wasn't certainly the acquisitions team was definitely not going to be into it because again, it's kind of a quiet manuscript about a grandfather grandson relationship and poetry. And um, and so I held I, on. To I haven't it. read it, but just the way you you've described it, I can imagine every librarian in the world that wants to talk about poetry, that's the book they would reach for. I would think. It's, I mean, it's uh, it was a. It was a hard sell. It was a harder thing to do. And and so much depends upon the house you're at and how the house sees itself. Like if the house sees itself as very literary and thoughtful, like um, like FSG. Like I, I love the books that my friends at FSG do. And they think they, you know, they think they're like the literariest of the literary. Um, versus if you're at a more commercial house where they their goal is to like get their books on the Times bestseller list, you know, all the time or something like that. Um, then that will influence like how how what kind of books the editor can acquire there, um, what kind of books does the house succeed with, 
Um, like at Scholastic, you know, we did an amazing job selling um, middle grade fiction. So if you could get a middle grade fiction to us, like we could blow it out of the water. Other categories, we didn't do so well at. And, um, and, and that made it more difficult sometimes to acquire those categories. It's, it's all over the place and it all shifts over time and it all depends upon the moods of sometimes the stock market, sometimes the buyers at Barnes & Noble, sometimes, you know, this, that, or the other thing. Um, and, 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 and so, well, coming back to the, the point you were making about editors and egos, um, we are also subject to agents. <laughs> Because agents will send us things or not send us things. Um, they will send us things and then announce a week later that they're holding an auction and we have to have bids in within three days, you know, um, which requires that you must drop everything else you're doing and, and put together your all your materials to acquire this book. And then that means you have to go and like supplicate yourself with the feet of your boss about acquiring this book. Um, so <laughs> all of which is to say it's, it's very easy to have a big ego as an editor, but it's also very easy not to. <laughs> because you're, you're constantly like having people uh, tell you that you, um, you're you not good enough. Or I, I don't know if that, that's, not, that's not the right phrase, but you're constantly sort of battling for to do the books you want, to get support for the books you want, to convince other, to convince agents to give you the books you want to get the money to buy books from those agents. Like, like you don't have time to have an ego because you're constantly convincing other people to let you do things. That's, that's sort of, or, or talking to authors and trying to get authors to do the things that you want them to do to make the book turn out. Um, which you think is in the book's interest, which you hope is also what the, is in the author's interest, you know, um, to get the author to, I don't know. <laughs> but but and, and all this is to say I don't know a lot of I don't know very many editors who have big unhealthy egos like that I would say like I guess so much, much opportunity if you, I would have thought and this this continues to amaze me as I as I, I, do I, should, also this, this oh, also, I should also note that this has that um that there's a, a, most of my close editor friends are women and I think that makes a difference too I'll okay. leave it at that <laughs> okay yeah I think we could probably read between the lines, but if you wanted to explicitly state it, I would allow it. <laughs> I would be happy to hear it. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I was going to say what, what continues to amaze me is I'm, I'm talking with authors who, in my mind, have to be the end-all, be-all. I'm, I'm talking sometimes with folks that every author I've talked to is amazing, but sometimes I'm talking to somebody that, okay, you've been doing this long enough, you're famous enough, nobody should, should be able to tell you no. And on the editor side of that, I would think Cheryl B. Kine, author of Second Sight, that's where you've got to be. Who, who is at that level? Who can get to that point where nobody tells me no? I do. I, uh, I have an idea for a book. We're doing it. I, I Thanos snapped this thing into existence. Is there anybody in publishing that has that? Or is, is everybody in, in, in some way having to negotiate? I mean, I think... I think there are people I can name. Yeah, there, there are there are people who I really admire who can make that, who can just do stuff. I think who can get the money just by going like that, um, and who and who do great books because of it. Um, but uh, but all of us are subject to not subject. That's the wrong word. But all of us are responsible for persuading our sales team or persuading people like this is this is how we should spend our money. And um, and this is how much money we should spend. 
And because we're all responsible for making money in the end, I would say. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. So in this uh, world that's, you know, could be influenced by everything you mentioned. Um, yeah. uh, certainly, I'm, I'm assuming the... Uh, I mean, um, how, how Mifflin Harcourt right now is for sale. And that, um, so is Simon & Schuster, I think. And both of them are owned by corp larger corporate entities. So that's a stock market thing. Like if the stock market, if their investors decide that they don't want to uh, spend a lot of money on books, like that influence, that does trickle down somewhat to how the editors can spend money. So with all those factors coming into play, um, how do you make your peace with a business that that's, that that's crazy? And how should authors make their peace with, with so much that, that that's out of the control of, of, of all the uh, artists involved? Yeah. Oh, well, that is a great question. And what I tend to say is control what you can control. And and that is the quality of your writing and, and, the, and what you are putting into that writing. Like you can't control um, when a book is going to strike an editor at the perfect time or whether the editor will be at the perfect house to acquire that book. You can you can do some research and things like that that will help you know what what place is best. Or agents like always have their ear to the ground for all these sort of things and these underground rumblings. But um, but what writers can control is the story that they have to tell and um, and how good that story is. And you you can think about um, and maybe also like you can control what story you want to put out in the world at the time. I mean, coming back to Harry Potter for just a minute. I, I don't actually think this was intentional on J.K. Rowling's part, but the fact that she wrote Harry, like a huge amount of the success of Harry Potter, I think, can be attributed it, to it being published starting in the year 1997. Because you know what else was starting in the year 1997 was the internet. <laughs> and if there ever a book was designed for being discussed by people on the internet, a book series was designed for that, it was Harry Potter. And also, the largest high school graduating class of all time um, graduated in 2008. How old were those people in 2008? And, and when 1997, they were nine or ten. They were the perfect age for Harry Potter. J.K. Rowling could not control any of that. She could control the story that she put out there. And then she happened to have the massive good luck of having a huge audience of exactly the right age who all got on the Internet and got passionate about discussing these books at the right at the same time, you know. And so, um, so, but what she could control was the writing and she, and she got rejected by like, I forget whether it was 12 or 21 or whatever publishers, because at the time she was putting the book out there originally, like everybody was like, fantasy, bah, you know, but she believed in the book. And so she kept going and then the time changed and times changed and it turned out to be the right time for everything because she had a good book. That was exciting to read. Is it an apocryphal tale that it was it author Levine's daughter that, that discovered the manuscript and said, "Hey, let's publish this," or was that somebody at Bloomsbury in, in UK? That's I, I don't know about daughter. Um, Arthur found Arthur was given a galley of the book at the Bologna Book Fair uh, by somebody who worked at Bloomsbury. Okay, um, and so uh, it wasn't his daughter, but um, he doesn't have a daughter actually, but uh, but. Okay, well, case closed. <laughs> yeah, case closed. But it might have been like the agent's daughter or something like that. So, yeah. 
Well, with, with that particular uh, book, I know there's so many apocryphal tales. I'm I'm, yeah. I'm never certain what's what's actually real. And <laughs> yeah. um, I want to talk about Lee and Lowe, but since we came back to Harry Potter, one more burning question on that. <laughs> Having had that experience, and obviously uh, when I talked with uh, Thomas Taylor, who's the author of The Wonderful Malamander, uh, check the back catalog of Steamed Audience. He's worth listening to. His books are worth reading. Great, great author. But he also designed the UK cover for Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Um, And so when I asked him about it, because of course, uh, among all the other questions I had for him, uh, he admitted that at times he wished he hadn't been a part of that because he always has to live up and live past that and step outside of the the shadow of, you know, the biggest series that probably has ever existed or, or close to. Um, certainly for, I don't know, you, you would be the person to ask, what's bigger than Harry Potter in, in, in the world of children's fiction? Um, maybe, there's not much. I mean, not, not in hardcover. I mean, things like Rick Riordan, maybe. Um, but... And and then and then there's like Goosebumps and Magic Treehouse and Junie B. Jones and you know there's there's lots of chapter book series that have sold millions of copies just chugging along and don't get the respect that they deserve, um, you know, for the work that they do down there. But in terms of middle grade or YA hardcover, there's there's a, there's basically Harry and Hunger Games and required in and i feel kind of like that's it <laughs> yeah fair enough yeah uh well my uh my, my question uh was coming uh, coming from that and going forward knowing that um i don't know maybe jk rowling comes up with an idea for another harry potter and she says hey let's get the gang back together but 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 uh short of that um it's not that likely that you're ever going to catch that kind of lightning in a bottle again or be a part of something quite that huge is that a relief or are, do you prefer to work on books that have a, a dedicated fan base and an audience that you're going to reach, but that you, you don't have to go on Nightline and, and address the whole world? Honestly, like, I think, I, I do think Harry was like, a, I mean, I, I take no responsibility for being part of it, um, for, for creating it in any way. I was just sort of caught up in writing the lightning. Um, my my own take on it is more that like I want I want the thing that I can control. Coming back to the idea of what you can control, I I can't control whether any books will ever sell that well again. And to some extent, I don't expect any book to ever sell that well again. Um, but just because I I think that the internet has moved on or, or the world has moved on. Um, Attention spans are a lot more fractured now. Things are, things are, you know, it's a lot harder to capture people's minds and attention, I think, in the way that Harry did at that one time. Um, anything now that's published will be, get compared to Harry. Whereas Harry, there wasn't really anything to compare it to other than um, in terms of sales before that. Um, so I don't really expect any, I, I would love to find, the thing that, huh, I would love to find a book that sells it well, of course. But I, but really, what I would love to find more is a book that people that makes people feel the way that Harry Potter felt, um, in the sense that um, it sweeps people up into a magical world, 
it um, you fell in love with the characters or, or more accurately, perhaps you feel like the characters are your friends and you want to hang out with them, even if they're just like sitting around bickering about Quidditch or some other obscure sport, you know, um, and you want to unravel the mysteries and you want to go on this um, magical adventure and feel like you're learning things within the magical world. Like, so I would love to find a book that does that even if it's set in our real world, you know, and it's not a fantasy. I would love to find a book that does that, um, certainly starring a kid of color that uh, that has that same warmth and loveliness. And again, going back to the things I can control, like I can't control necessarily whether that book will come to me and I can't control whether it'll sell a million dollars or sell a million copies. Um, but I can control the what the books I choose to publish and the level of editorial attention I give them and the work that I do on them to try to make them as appealing as possible for the readers who are going to find them and who need them. So that's, so I try to bring that same, like whether a book is going to publish, whether a book, what do I think a book is going to publish, sell a million copies or sell 10,000 copies? I try to bring that same level of dedication and thoughtfulness and love to it to make it the best book that it can be for what it's going to be um and and that's the thing i can control like yeah and speaking of, of control let's talk about uh leon low books because they are um very seems to be from the, the the material on the website very proud of the fact that it is an independent uh publisher yeah what I mean, please tell us uh, about Leon Lowe. Yeah, uh, Leon Lowe was published. Um, was published. Leon Lowe was started in uh, 1991 by two men, uh, Philip Lee and Tom Lowe, um, both of them of Asian descent, um, and uh, and both felt like there were not enough books in the world that uh, portrayed contemporary children of color, and they wanted to rectify this gap in the market. And um, I believe they were one of the first. They weren't the first, but they were one of the first publishers devoted to doing this, like especially for children. And uh, we're celebrating our 30th anniversary next year, which is great. Um, and uh, yeah, right. very exciting. Um, unfortunately, uh, Mr. Lowe, old, old, old Mr. Lowe, um, Tom Lowe passed away this past year. Um, and uh, the company is now sons, uh, Craig and um, Jason. And um, and it's entirely owned by the by the Lowe family. Um, so we don't have any corporate investors. We don't have anybody else telling us what we should publish. Um, we are not subject to the whims of the stock market, like I said earlier. Uh, we are only subject to what we want to publish, what we think is important, um, and what we are excited to bring to our customers, who are uh, we we have a lot of educational customers, a lot of teachers. Um, and school districts that buy our books. And, uh, and of course, we also publish books into bookstores for the trade. So, um, so we publish the books we like, and that's what it means to be independent, I would say, um, with, and without being subject to the other pressures. So a question that I never know what's a what's a good question to ask and what's maybe verging on, the, on, on rudeness. I'm hoping this is on the, in the good category. Uh -huh. 16, 16 years uh, with Arthur Levine, 
Uh, you've got the Harry Potter cred. You could do anything, I would imagine. This might be another assumption that I'm just wrong. But yeah. I would think that uh, Cheryl B. Klein can, or I'm sorry, Cheryl Klein, when you're editing, can go anywhere, do anything, widely and low. Um, well, I, I will say part of it, uh, I was, uh, I had an amazing experience at Arthur A. Levine books and I was, um, but I had sort of gone as far as I could go within a named imprint, you know, a named imprint is like a small ship and there's always a captain <laughs> and, and I was never going to be the captain of that ship. <laughs> and, um, and I, I, I'm a, ambitious person I wanted the opportunity to like be an editorial director myself and work with younger editors and um and figure out what a list looked like and all those sort of things and um and I, that's the way I think uh I, I don't that's the way I think most editors feel quite often I mean I think there are some of them who only ever want to edit but a lot of us want to be like editorial director and um and work with other editors and direct a list and help put all that together um, and that was a thing I wanted experience with, and um, it was just not a thing I could get experience with at Scholastic. Um, I also really, uh, at the time that all of this happened, um, it was 2016. It was right after the election, and um, the <laughs> capital T, capital E, the election, and um, and I was feeling very strongly like, and, and this is something that had been evolving throughout my career, but. Um, I'd always been interested in working with underrepresented authors and telling stories of underrepresented people, um, in part, in part because it it is good to we need more we need more stories like that in the world, obviously. But um, but also like for my own taste as a reader, like it was just fascinating to discover new worlds that I, growing up with, had never met, like or, or never encountered, like. Um, one of the books I published at Scholastic, I published two books by Sarwat Chatta um, that were set they were, um, in India, and they basically drew on Indian mythology, the god, the goddess Kali, and um, and the various demons in Indian mythology. And that was something I did not know anything about or hadn't encountered at all when I was a kid. Um, you know, I hadn't heard about it until I got to college and heard about comparative religions. Um, so to bring that book out to make that book more make those kinds of stories more widely available to to show kids that there were the world is so much bigger than what you might see growing up in peculiar Missouri, you know, <laughs> um, like that felt really important to me, and it was both like a delight to me as a reader to to be finding all these new worlds to read for myself and to be sharing those with kids, and it felt important to me like particularly at that time. That we be up, that I be involved in uplifting the voices of marginalized writers, and um, and I I don't say I don't say that to make myself important in any way because there are there are editors who have been doing this work for much longer than I have, and um, and Arthur among them, um, my friend Nami Tripathi at Kokola Books who does amazing books, uh, Stacy Barney. Um, a whole range of amazing editors, Nancy Paulson, um, who I very much admire. Um, so I, I, I don't say this to like as a reflection of editorial ego or anything like that. But that was the, that was the sort of if we were picking sides and, and after the election, that was the fight I wanted to be involved in. Like I wanted to be involved in putting more of these stories out there. And Lee and Lowe, um, 
we went through a long discussion process, I would say, as part of the interviewing. And Alien Low felt like a good place to be doing that. Um, so it was a nice opportunity uh, for me to grow as an editor and a person um, at a time when I was ready for that challenge and a time when I felt like I was really motivated to do more books by and about people of color, which is Lee and Lowe's whole mission. So that's why I chose to move. Good for you. What a wonderful reaction to such a terrible event in 2016. Well, it, it was it was again luck and and timing and everything else and um, yeah so which is which is most of publishing is luck and timing. Ah, <laughs> you know, I'm beginning to believe it. I I really was suspicious before I started this podcast, and this is episode 100, and I I think I've been convinced. <laughs> work. I should not leave but, out hard work. Hard work makes a big difference, and I have done a fair a fair amount of hard work in my time too. So, <laughs> but uh, yeah. Well, it's uh, something, another quote from you that I wanted to ask you about and unpack a little bit. I think we talked a little bit about the white reader, but you uh, mentioned the cheerful privilege of the white reader. And this is a, a, a phrase I had not come across before, but I love it. So if you would, what, what, what does that mean? What is the cheerful privilege of the white reader? Could you remind me where I said this? Uh, on the uh, website where... No, <laughs> is the answer. <laughs> uh, on the Liam Lowe site. Uh, but we're exactly where no, because I've, I've been listening to multiple podcasts with you and, and, and right. reading multiple sites. Because uh, I think whenever, I, whenever I'm talking about race, particularly, I think it's, useful, it's always useful to put things in context and to know what I, what I was saying and what I was talking about. Um, so I think the cheerful, that phrase, the cheerful privilege of the right reader, I, I would guess that when I was talking about it, um, the, I, I think the privilege of the white reader is to some extent always to always think of yourself as a blank slate um, and to think of yourself as a, um, as the default, you know, like when you're reading a book and, uh, and, and no matter who the, you're reading a book and another character walks on screen, um, do the, is the character's race named? If it is not named, then eight times out of 10, nine times out of 10, it's usually safe to assume that character is white because you, we assume that people look like us, I think quite often, that's what we're projecting. And unless we are given evidence to the contrary, like, um, like, a boy with dark skin walks onto the walks onto the page or whatever. Um, that is that is how the white reader tends to default in their thinking, um, and and that is a privilege. That uh, uh, I, I I I mean that's a, that's an example of white privilege. I will say. Um, I I I hesitate to say it in the way that that is a privilege because. Um, there's, I feel like there's a better word than privilege. Um, although it's not coming to me. Like that, that is a- uh, Almost like a learned behavior or something in that neighborhood? Well, I'm sorry? Like a learned behavior, something in that neighborhood? Behavior. It's, it's, I was gonna say it's an unfair advantage. Like, like to, it's an unfair advantage to always be centered. It's an unfair advantage to always think of yourself as the center of the story. You know, and to always be, quite often always be the center of the story. 
Because when you are always the center of the story, then you don't. Um... <laughs> I mean, I think the classic person who is always the center of the story is Donald Trump. Like Donald Trump has not had to be this the side line of anybody else's story for his entire life. You know, he is always he and um, and he. I mean, he's obviously like the worst and most curdled and cartoonishly bad version of that. But like, you don't think he's just so happy always being the star? (laughs) Oh, sure. It's very easy to be happy always being the center of attention. It's very easy. I don't think he's been happy a day in his life. (laughs) Very facetious that question. But but it's very easy to be. But it, but it, it very easily can make you a terrible person too. And I think quite often with white people, um, it's very easy for us not to pay attention to anybody else because we get to be the center of the story so easily. And, um, and I mean, there are hundreds of, of black writers and um, writers of color who've, who've talked about all this much more eloquently than I can or will. But, um, but that we, um, when I say cheerful privilege, um, it is a happy privilege, you know, it is a, it is a, uh, a lucky, ignorant thing. You're, you're just in this little happy bubble and, um, and you don't really have to pay attention to anything else. But I think if there's anything we've seen in the last few years, and I think that white people more and more are recognizing it's that for the health of the world, especially for the health of this poor country of ours, we need to burst that bubble a little bit more. We need to be more cognizant of the world beyond ourselves and, um, and engage with that more. And so, um, I, I mean, one, one of the things I'll say is like, I, I learned a lot from, I've, I've learned, I've learned about this a lot from my authors, especially, um, the authors of color who I've worked with. Um, I always think about, uh, Oleg Dumasola Rude Perkovich, who, uh, I published her first book, um, Eighth Grade Super Zero, when I was at Scholastic. Um, And I learned a ton from working with her, um, in part because she would call me on this, like on the page. Like if I, like um, there was one point on the, in a, in a, there's one point where um, her characters were walking down the street and they went into a Chinese restaurant in Brooklyn and they got French fries. And the copy editor said, should we explain to people like that people don't think of in, in other parts of the country, people don't think of kids going into Chinese restaurants and getting French fries like that's not a thing. You would go into Chinese restaurants and get maybe crab rangoon or something, although that's also not a real Chinese thing. But um, but it is a totally normal thing in uh, in New York. Like there's lots of Chinese restaurants that will sell you like a one dollar packet of French fries. And so, um, and so I think I, either the copy editor or I said to Bimmy, like we said, um, should we explain to readers what's going on here? You know, like you could buy a French fries for a dollar or something and, um, to, to hell, like, and I was thinking, actually, I was thinking specifically of like people like me in Kansas City, Missouri, as a kid would have been very confused by that whole reference like and think that somebody had made a mistake that these kids were buying french fries in a chinese restaurant um and i said do you i think i wrote a note to bimmy that was like would you be willing to amend the text slightly to explain this 
and she wrote back if I'm and and I, I won't this isn't gospel but she wrote back something like no because I'm not writing for white girls and this is not what she did not say white girls but um she said I'm not writing for kids in Kansas City Missouri I'm writing for black kids in Brooklyn and black kids in Brooklyn will know that you can buy Chi you can buy french fries in the Chinese restaurant and that was a big lesson to me as a editor and it's still something I think about like when I am querying writers like who is the person that we are writing for um how wide do we want to cast our net informationally? Like, like to some extent, like there are some writers who might say, like, sure, I'm willing to explain that because you know it it doesn't make a big difference. Like some writers might feel like it doesn't make a big difference to explain it, and other writers feel like no, it's betraying my audience to explain it. And um, and so who who are we going for here? How can we reach? Do we want to reach the most people or do we want to reach the specific slice of people? Like these are all questions that I think about all the time and wrestle with all the time and wrestle with with my authors on the page, you know, or like us trying to define what are who are we writing for? What are we doing? Um, who are we publishing for? All those all those questions. with like a footnote. Dear Missouri girls, just so you know. In Brooklyn. <laughs> well, sometimes people do that. Like, um, I mean, another book that I learned a lot from in that exact same way was um, The Brief Wonder's Life of Oscar Wilde by uh, Juno Diaz, um, which has footnotes, exactly like you say, some of which explain stuff like this um, about, like, Dominican history. This is an adult book. But um, some of which explain, you know, like, the casual references to Dominican history, they explain it. And some of the footnotes, if I remember right, are in Spanish, not translated. And I read high school Spanish, but like I didn't know what was going on in those footnotes. And it was a really powerful and important experience for me to read that book and feel like this is not meant for me. And that's OK. You know, and that's the cheerful privilege of the right reader is to think like this is not meant for me or this is everything. The cheerful privilege is to think everything should be for me. And that everything should be edited to serve me. You know, and if it doesn't, if it isn't edited to serve me, then it's bad. Like aesthetically, it does not work or it doesn't make sense. Or um, I mean, you see, you see this sometimes with men and, and women, like male writers and, and like men, male readers saying this book is bad because it it's a book written by a woman and it talks about things I don't want to think about, you know, stuff like that. Um, uh, or, or female writers who make fun of the way that men writers, male writers write, write women, <laughs> like with excessive attention to their breasts or whatever. This is all in adult books more than, more than children. But, um, but yeah, you that's said that, but I, I know I, I could think of a few middle grade examples where, nope, nope, there it is. There's the male gaze yeah, right yeah. here in our book intended like, for fourth and fifth graders. <laughs> and so if, a, if a male, if a male gaze is in a book or if a, if a man is reading a book and it's all female gaze, then they can be made uncomfortable by that, you know, and um, and be like, this is a bad book. Well, that's the privilege of the male reader to say, like, this is a bad book, even though it's just not a book that is meant for you. And um, and I think all of us as readers could be more thoughtful about what books are meant for us and how we judge books that might not be meant for us 
or be open to like what what makes good books and what what is different what 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 values we have that are, are how we define good books and these are questions I, I say all this like I have some kind of definitive answers and I don't <laughs> like basically <laughs> like I, I'm I'm um, I, I'm very aware like especially when I'm editing cross-culturally like that I am a uh, a person who does not have all the answers and that I need to be humble about that the whole time like that that's important to like acknowledge what you do not know I would say so your editorial director, you've got a list of all the strengths of the different editors that you've got there at your disposal. How do you compensate for that? Um, because obviously I can't ask you definitively, how do you decide between making sure you're accessible to as many readers as possible and making sure that you're true to the voice of the author? Uh, only you can know that on, on any individual book. And I, I'm guessing over your career, there's maybe been one or two times where you still aren't sure these many years later. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing. Oh, I, I can tell you about editorial arguments I had 10 years ago. <laughs> like, because, uh, I mean, I think anything that makes you sort of chew over, am I right or am I wrong, um, is, I think it's, in my experience, it's both like painful, but also a good thing. Like, I think a lot of those things have made me a better human being as well as a better editor. Um, so uh, in terms of, of compensating editorially like as editorial director I think about like what what does what does our list need you know what kind of books should we be putting out there that we maybe aren't and how could I find um an editor who would want to do those kind of books you know um who is passionate about doing science nonfiction? I would love to hire that person, you know, because <laughs> because I, I, I can do science nonfiction and I have, but I won't say it's one of my strengths. And it's the thing I'd like to learn more about. But um, but there are editors who are like do amazing science nonfiction. And so that would be a great thing to have on our list, like that sort of thing. Um, what else? Uh, I mean, you asked about another thing about editorial ego is like, and this is something I, I think to myself all the time is like, what is the, and this is something I think about too in writing is like, what is the most important thing? That is the question that I use all the time is with a writer and the editor or who is the most important person right now. Um, and like if, if I'm doing a project and, um, and, I'm, and I'm weighing like, should we cut this line? Like the question is, what is the most important thing? The most important thing is, is it at this moment, is it telling the reader how the character feels or is it keeping the story moving? And if it, and if it turns out that like right now, the more important thing is the momentum of the story, then yeah, we should cut this line because it's taking away from the momentum of the story. So then I might make my argument for that in the core, in the, um, in the margin of the manuscript about like, the mo I, won't, I won't use the phrase like the most important thing is the momentum of the story but that would be like my underlying argument is like listen right now the most important thing is that we keep this book going like we you are on a tear here and we do not want to distract the reader by having this random reference to something that happened 40 pages ago so can we just cut this line um so that's the thing i use a lot in editing and it's the thing i use a lot like if i'm having an argument with somebody like 
is the most important thing how I feel right now, or is the most important thing getting, um, and then I mean this on a personal level, like, is the most important thing, like, making our relationship work well enough that we can carry through and keep doing this book, you know? Um, in some cases, how I feel is really important, and in some cases, it is not. Um, and especially as a, and this is the thing I've also learned about editing cross-culturally, is, like, quite often, as a white person, my feelings are not the most important thing, and it's very dangerous if I center them. Because the more important thing is telling the stories of people who have who have helped, not telling the stories, but helping the stories of writers who have not been um, historically well represented. Helping those stories get out there is the most important thing. And so, like I have said, <laughs> an example I think about, I have said stupid things. And and I have and they have people and writers have gently like set me down, and I have thought and I felt hurt by that or upset by that. But then I've been like, how I feel is not the most important thing. I like the important thing is like I have just learned something and I should move along with this. And um, and I mostly try to and I try to do that most of the time. So um, yeah. I mean, I'll give I'll give you an example was that like um, when I, I was working on a book, the first book I ever worked on with a Native American author was Eric Gansworth's um, If I Ever Get Out of Here, which is a really wonderful, powerful um, middle grade YA novel. He's about he's 13. So he's right at the cusp about um, music and it's set um, on the Tuscarora Indian Reservation in upstate New York in the early 1970s. And um or maybe the mid 1970s. It's been a few years. <laughs> and uh, anyway, uh, the um, I, I was writing the book copy for it, and I made I tried to make some pun about reservations, like he's off the reservation or he has no reservations about what he's doing or something like that. And Eric very gently was like, "No, <laughs> it's like that's really cheesy. Everybody has done that. No." We do not do this thing. And I was like, all right. <laughs> you know, I'm not used to ed authors pushing back on my copy. And sometimes I feel like, oh, man, I labored so hard on this. But in this case, I was wrong and it was cheesy. And he called me on it. And that's a good thing, you know. And so um, so even if I felt bad, like it was important to me not to carry that forward, but to learn the lesson and go from there. So. And you did immediately, and you said, "Okay, well, I'm wrong. We'll just rewrite it, and that that's it." Or was it? Let me sit yeah. on this for 24 hours. And I mean, I think I think I probably did set, sit on it for like 24 hours. And then I was like, "Okay, you know." I mean, God knows, I don't want to put bad copy out there. I don't want to put cheesy copy out there. So, um, so it was a useful thing all around. Um, but uh, but but I mean, I guess this comes back to that ego point too. Is like about writerly ego, like. I think you're whatever kind of ego you have when you stop listening to other people, that's the dangerous point, you know, like not, not to everybody. You've got to like keep your own vision and your own sense of what you're doing. But, um, but if there are thoughtful people around you who want to help you do what you're doing better and who understand what you're doing um, and who share your goals, then like you need to be listening to them. Um, and so, yeah. Seems like a good rule of thumb to live by. Yeah. Um, 
I've got some uh, burning editorial questions about some things you said. Because I, I, I think I told you in my initial letter that I bought um, uh, Second Sight immediately when it came out. I said, oh, my God, the editor of Harry Potter, this, this book will have everything I ever need to know. And it did. Because it was a good purchase. Yeah. Um, so I've got some uh, questions about that. But it would be irresponsible of me not to at least mention the fact that you do have a book coming out here in the very near future. What can you tell us about a year of everyday wonders available December 8th? Yeah. Yes. A year of everyday wonders. It's a picture book. Uh, it'll be my third picture book. Yes. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, and, and, and what it does is it actually grew out of my own habit of noting the firsts as I go through a year. So like, um, so like on January 1st, I will say like, oh, this is the first morning of the new year. And then I will have a cup of coffee. I'll be like, this is my first cup of coffee of the new year. <laughs> and then later as things go along, you know, it's like... Um, my first panic attack of the new year. Oh, how exciting. <laughs> oh, there's that. Or, or like, uh, you know, my first cold of the new year. But, or, <laughs> sure. or, or even better, like the first day I can sleep by, without a big heavy blanket on the bed. You know, the first day you go outside without wearing a jacket. Um, the first time you go to the beach, the first ice cream cone of the year, all those different things. And um, so I, I've always noted these habits, these little things, just like for fun in my own mind. And um, one day I sat down and I basically turned them into a book like that runs through the calendar year, starting in January and going through to the following December. And um, and it's all these little firsts. And um, and then there's also kind of a subtle uh, story built in there. Because on the first day of the new year, the main character has a first fight with her brother. And then later there's a like 30, 98th fight with your brother. And then later the 222nd fight with your brother. And, um, but you also see them sort of reconcile in the course of the year. And um, it was really fun to write because uh, it, it's entirely written in firsts. There are, there are no characters named. There is no narration. It's just these lists of firsts or lasts or thirds or whatever it might be. And, um, and so in that way, it was really fun to leave space for an illustrator to come in and fill in all those details about like, who is the character and, um, and what is the family like? And I mean, actually the, the text didn't even specify is the main character male or female or, bin or non-binary or whatever. Um, so, uh, so the illustrator got to fill that in as well. You only knew that the main character had a brother basically. And, um, and there are, there are certain things set by the text that dictate a little bit, like, like the fact that there's a snowfall, um, indicates that probably they're living in the Northeast or, or, you know, the North of the country as opposed to the South. And it's very definitely the United States in various ways. I think there's fireworks at the 4th of July, but, um, but it's an, inter it's an interesting manuscript in both like the poeticism of it and kind of the negative space that left for the illustrator to fill in. And uh, it, it was bought by Emma Ledbetter at Abrams, who does lovely, lovely picture books. And I say that as one of her authors, obviously, but even so, she does great picture books. <laughs> I say that as an editor admirer as well. And, um, and uh, she hired uh, Chin Ling, who is a Canadian illustrator. And Chin was perfect because she is very character oriented. And she captures like a lot of those little emotional moments and uh, gestures and things that really define who a personality is in illustration. And so she was a great person to kind of like fill in 
the missing spaces left by the text. And, um, and it, the book turned out really, really beautifully. And I'm really pleased with it and proud of it. So what thank a you. Tremendous, uh, amount of trust that uh, you're not even picking a, a gender. You, you do that uh, illustrator. And I hope it comes out wonderful because my entire book kind of more or less rests on <laughs> doing a wonderful job. Is that because of over so many years and, and, and previous picture books, you've learned that you can trust an excellent illustrator or... How, how do I get to that state of sin? Like, let me trust the illustrator because I don't and I aspire to. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, I, I have extreme privilege here in that, like, I have seen this, you know, I have made this process happen myself in that I'm an editor. So, so I, um, so I know the magic that can happen. I know the thing that can be done. And, um, and if you're working with a good editor whom you trust, um, and, and I think at this stage, I think most editors are giving authors at least some input into their illustrator selection. They're saying like, you know, um, I, uh, I'm thinking about these three people, who do you like? At least I almost always do that. And I think most editors do. Um, maybe I'm wrong. We do that at Lee and Lowe too. Um, then then if you have a sense of what the illustrator is capable of, it's a lot more easy to relax and trust it, things in that way. If, if you trust the, and, and I also got to look at the, uh, at the sketches at one point, and I got, I got to give feedback on those. And that was useful too, because um, like at that point, I went through and I sort of tweaked some of the phrases to try to work better with what Chin was doing. And actually when I submitted the manuscript, I made it very clear that I was open to tweaking things with however the illustrator might want to handle it. Um, and, and I think most of that comes from, again, like a sense of humility in knowing what I am capable of and what I am not capable of. <laughs> or, or, you know, like, uh, or, and, and recognizing what I can bring to a manuscript versus what an illustrator can bring to a manuscript. And illustrators, like it's their job to bring character and drama and all those sort of things through just the illustration. What I'm providing is the structure and, um, and ideally some, uh, some insight, you know, some, uh, what's the word I want? Some pithy little phrases <laughs> that, 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 that move the reader along. I mean, my first book, Wings, has only 12 words in it. And they all rhyme, you know, and um, and that one, like even more, I I was trusting the illustrator because it was entirely dependent on the illustrator to like really craft what the action was and the emotion of this little bird who's trying to fly for the first time. Um, and uh, and Tama De Paula did the illustrations in that. And at first, I will tell you at first, like when Emma edited that book too and at first when she pitched him to me I was like I'm not sure about this because I mostly knew him from like um the Streganona books and things like that and I knew he was a wonderful illustrator but I but I wasn't sure I thought maybe somebody with more detail was needed to flesh out a text that had only 12 words and Emma said no he really loves drawing birds and I think he'll do a great job with this and then when I saw his sketches and um and the final book like his very elemental shapes, like his strong, um, plain shapes, like ended up being the perfect counterpoint to my text, which is like 
all about the shape of the words, you know, like <laughs> I'm getting very mystical here, kind of. Uh, um, I'm nodding like I understand. I, I don't understand. <laughs> Please explain. <laughs> okay. Um, like the, the, the text for wings runs wings and you see a little bird flapping her wings, clings, and then you see the bird at the edge of a nest, flings, and she flings herself out of the, t the nest. And then you see her falling. And then stings, because she crashes on the ground. Uh, rings, because she's lasted in a puddle, and so she rings herself out. And then dings, and she's hurt her tail a little bit. Um, and it goes on from there. But, but you know, that's, it's, a very, it's a very simple text. It's providing just basically the plot structure of what she does. And providing the pleasure, the sound, the pleasure of the sound of the words altogether, and for readers, the pleasure of guessing like what's going to be the next word because obviously they all have to rhyme, and um, but because there's no there's no sentences there, you know, there's just like one part of speech per spread basically, there's like one one noun or one verb, that's it, um, like that's what I mean by it being very elemental. Like there's just one very strong element in that word. It's not like a very rococo, long, flowery sentence or anything like that. And so in that way, like Tommy DePala's illustration, um, with his style being very blocky and being, you know, a lot of strong lines and very simple shapes, like that was a good match for the sound of my text. Does that make sense? That does make more sense. I got you. Yeah, visual, visually, it was a visual counterpoint to the to the sound of my text. And so that made them a good partnership as words, as for words and pictures. In the same way that like Chin Ling's text, uh, Chin Ling's illustrations bringing out all the character really filled in the backstory and everything else for my text, which sort of outlined for a year of everyday wonders, which sort of outlined all these character things that happened, but didn't elaborate on them. Like she was able to elaborate on them visually. Gotcha. Whereas, whereas I just provided the structure and the space for all of that to happen. So, um, so I, I obviously think about this a lot. <laughs> like I, I, I don't mean to praise my books as like, oh yeah, I wrote a great book, blah blah blah. But, but I, I do want to well, praise. If you didn't think that, why'd you publish it? <laughs> right. Well, that's true. I, I'm a Midwesterner. I have to denigrate myself. <laughs> sure, I understand. I'm not allowed. To, I'm not allowed to be unself-deprecating <laughs> by, by my own cultural standards. Um, but, uh, but no, I do think they're good books. But, but I, but I really do also think that the, the great amount of the credit for that goes to the illustrator and how well the illustrators, the choice of the illustrator, matched what I was doing in the text. So, um, and so I, and coming back to what you say about confidence, like I had confidence because I believed in my text. I believed in the, I believed in the illustrator. I believed in the editor. And I really, really love picture books that do tricks of the kind I'm describing. Like, like, and, and by tricks, I mean like having a picture book text that's only 12 words. That's kind of a neat trick to pull off, you know? Or having a picture book text that um, that is just composed of little phrases. Like one of the picture books I come back to again and again. I'm, no, I don't have it here. I don't think. I actually have a copy of it floating around just recently. Um, is A Hole is to Dig by Ruth Krauss. 
Okay. Um, and if you've never looked this up, this is a book from the 1950s illustrated by Mari Sindak. Um, but it's, it's called A Child's First Book of Definitions. And it's all de things like a hole is to dig. A hole is to put a seed into. You know, a hole is to, um, is hole is for a dog to bury a bone in. Like, it's all definitions like that. And it's very modular, kind of. Like, there's lots of pieces that come together to form the text of the book. And, and that makes it a neat book. And um, I love books that do cool things like that. Like, like my favorite picture book, one of my favorite picture books ever is Charlie Parker played Bebop by um, Chris Roshka, which is, which has entire spreads that are nothing but um, scat, like in, in the jazz sense, like, um, like the way Ella Fitzgerald scatted is just like um, barbecue, barbecue, barbecue bar, you know, <laughs> like overshoes, overshoes, overshoes. Oh, this is actual text in this book. And, um, and it really makes you aware of the pleasure of saying those words out loud. And it goes really well with the illustrations. And and the book itself like ends up embodying the spirit of Bebop in, in both its text and its art. And I just think it's magical. I love it. Every single time I read it, I am delighted by that book. And um, I feel that way about most of Chris Rashka's books. He came into the office once when I was working at Scholastic. And I and I and I like peered over the cubicle like he was a Backstreet Boy or something like that. <laughs> like, I was like, oh my gosh, it's Chris Rashka. Um, and, and I still feel that way about a lot of his books. Um, just because they, they do such cool things in, in the space that a picture book makes. Because um, the picture book is like such a cool artistic space. Because it's got a very regimented, oh Lord, I can go on about this all the time. All the time. <laughs> it's, got, it's a very regimented form. It's usually, you know, 32 or 40 or 48 pages. And it can't be any more than that. And it can't be any less than that because that's the way you print it. Um, and within that, you have to find the right text to work with the illustrations to make a story that flows from beginning to end um, within this confined space of like 15 spreads and two single pages at the beginning and end. And you have to like work in certain things that are um, important to the form, like a title page or something like that. Um, and it's just, it's like writing a sonnet when you're writing a picture book, because you have to make everything fit in the form. Um, but then you add, you add all the stuff that comes in from the visuals, like what are the things that you don't want to say because you know that the illustrations are going to pick them up. Um, like with a year of everyday wonders, like all the stuff I didn't say about the character because I knew that the illustrator could fill them in. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's, it's a magical form and, and there's so many cool things you can do with it. And I feel like, um, and I get really excited about working in books that, uh, that I get really excited when I find books that are doing those cool things. Like I've got a book coming out um, in, that, I, that I'm editing that's coming out a year, a year maybe, I'm, I'm not sure exactly, but it's a little ways off. But and uh, a, it's by a man who identifies as autistic. Um, it, it's called Flap Your Hands by Steve Asbell. And, um, and he, it's a book about the practice of stimming where uh, neurodiverse people and autistic people sometimes do a certain kind of repetitive motion in order to emotionally calm themselves or center themselves or because it feels pleasurable. Um, and it might be like waving your hands in the air or clapping them or something like that. 
And um, and it's a thing that like we non-autistic, I think allistic is the word, people do as well um, to, uh, you know, like when you might just like tap your fingers on your leg or something like that when you're bored. Like that's, we all stim, even if we don't think about it. Um, I'm a notorious hummer. Yeah, yeah. And um, and so the, uh, so the book like celebrates the practice of stimming and it does it in this really cool visual way where, uh, where it shows four different kids like sort of doing their own things and, it all co- and then it all comes together and unites. Um, so it, so it's, it's, it unites them in the, in the pleasure and the practice of stimming. And, and so it's, it's doing the kind of thing I love the most in that um, it's a neat book that is talking, that is doing something cool visually that can only be done by the picture book form over the 32 pages. Um, and, but in this case, especially it's doing it, it's representing a group that has not been represented before. You know, like there's been very, there haven't been a lot of picture books about autistic people. And there certainly haven't been very many written and illustrated by a person from that community who's speaking within the, from within that community. And so um, I'm hugely excited about the book and I'm um, bringing it out because uh, yeah, like I said, it does all the things I like best. And that'll be available when? Uh, either late next year or early 2022. And <laughs> things are sort of up in the air with a lot of stuff. It's been that kind of year, sure. It's been that kind of year. <laughs> Cheryl Klein, where did our time go? It flew by. It's, yeah. it's, it's been glorious. Um, I've got about, oh, I, I, I got maybe two more questions and we could call it a night. Is that, is that fair and reasonable? That sounds good. Yeah. I always want to end while we're having a good time. And this has been phenomenal. I, as, as great as I, I knew it would be, it's been 10 times better. Uh, <laughs> well, thank so, you for the opportunity uh, to talk about a lot of things that I think about a lot, but I don't often get to talk about like the privilege of the white reader thing. Like that's a thing that I wrestle with all the time, but Nobody ever asked me about that. So, so thank well, you. I feel like you have more thoughts later. And you're like, man, I, I really want to talk some more about this. Come back. <laughs> you're welcome anytime. Uh, esteemed audience knows that I have to ask, and they think I'm going to check it out because it's Cheryl Klein. I'm not. I ask everybody, Cheryl Klein, have you ever seen a flying saucer and or a ghost? No and no. Ah, I wasted a final question on that. Oh, shoot. Uh, then then my, uh, my absolute final question is always some variation of for all the things that I sh- if, that, that we would have teased out if only I had asked the correct questions um, and, and, and maybe we'll in, in the future. If there were one or two or however many pieces of advice you like um, that you would want every author listing or maybe even every editor as well listing to take to heart that would make their journey toward publication or after publication toward becoming a, a Daniel Jose older level superstar, um, if it would make that journey easier, what would you tell them? Well, since you mentioned Daniel, I will say go and find his essay, Writing Begins with Forgiveness. <laughs> if you Google Daniel Jose older, Writing Begins with Forgiveness, I think that's a great piece about um, writing and and building a writing life for yourself that's also mentally healthy. It's a lovely essay. Um, I would say focus on the things that you can control. Um, again, coming back to that control, what you can control and what you can control is your writing and um, the story that you find that you have to tell that feels important to you and comes from a deep 
placed inside you or a, um, and then focus on what you have to say. Because it's very easy to write something without actually having anything to say. <laughs> but, um, I do it all the time, sure. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but if you, but I think the best books come from people, come, and sometimes you may write something and you don't know what you have to say, and then you look at it and you're like, oh, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> um, uh, the, there's a Ian e. Forster quote I know what I think when I see what I say, um, that I think about a lot. But, uh, but be sure you have something that is actually useful to say and, and that you've done it to the best you can when you're putting it out there into the world. Um, and I think that's what, when you have something to say that comes from deep within your heart and can communicate to other people and their hearts, I think that's often when the best books um, happen and when books resonate most widely with readers. And uh, I forgot to plug uh, Lilo Tea Time, but we should yep. do that. And if you would tell the esteemed audience where they can find you online, learn more about you, and, and, and find all your books, all that good stuff. Yeah. So uh, this, thanks to the pandemic, actually, we started doing these wonderful things called Tea Time Talks at Lee and Lowe, where uh, editors of books would uh, interview writers on Skype, or not on Skype, on Zoom. And uh, we have a really nice library of these now with different, with me and my colleagues um, talking to our various uh, authors about their new projects. Um, I did a, I did one earlier with Hina Khan, who you mentioned, and uh, who did a picture book called Under My Hijab. And I did another one earlier this year, it was super fun, with um, Sherry Thomas, who wrote a retelling of Mulan, a YA retelling of the Mulan legend, called The Magnolia Sword. And um, after the Disney movie came out, she and I watched the movie and then we chatted about it um, as a tea time talk. And it was a super fun conversation. And all of those are online through the Lee and Lowe website. You can find them um, if you search, if you go to the books pages or if you go to the Lee and Lowe blog and look for tea time talks. And for me personally, uh, I have a website, CherylKlein.com, um, where I talk about both my editorial work and my um my uh, picture books. Um, I also have a newsletter, although I have not sent out a new episode, a new episode, a new newsletter edition in more than a year, <laughs> which guess what? Almost exactly corresponds with the age of my child. <laughs> um, but I, but I am actually, I should actually send out a new one because I have a year of everyday wonders coming out in December and it would be useful to send out a new book um, or a new newsletter. Uh, so I'm CherylKlein.com with a very occasional newsletter available there. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Chevelake, which is C-H-A-V-E-L-A-Q-U-E. -E. Uh, and I am voluble on both. It was a privilege and a pleasure. Uh, esteemed audience, you know where to find me. I'm at middlegradeninja.com. Go there. You can read interviews with really cool authors, editors, publishing professionals. Get the back catalog. Download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. And God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week.